Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. The aftermath of an auto accident can be draining. Dealing with physical injuries and emotional trauma is hurdle enough, but having to fight your insurance company to pay for rehabilitation treatment only exacerbates the suffering. Ontario's no-fault auto insurance system should alleviate this issue by providing quick and easy access to pre-approved care. But what happens if your injuries don't neatly align with the auto insurance system's established guidelines? Joining us today to help answer this question is Peter Laurie Bahat, the Director of Medical Legal Services at Pace Law, an Ontario law firm with over 40 years experience representing auto accident victims in the province. Peter, thanks for joining us today on RegWatch. Thank you, Brent. Pleasure to be here. So, Peter, off the top, how would you characterize the state of Ontario's auto insurance system? Well, I'd say it's broken. It's not delivering what its mandate is supposed to do um, in terms of access to necessary and timely care. Moreover, as the years progressed from when the introduction of the MIG took place, we see more and more clients not being treated fairly in terms of their initial entitlement to benefits. That is goes against the actual fundamentals of why the MIG was introduced. We're not sure if you're aware, but before the MIG, limits were not just 3,500. Essentially, there was something called a PATH, which is like a mini MIG, but the majority of all clients were getting to general policy of $100,000. Through lobbying by the insurance company, it was reduced to 3,500, wherein the proposed um, MIG would say that 55% of clients or patients would fall within the MIG and be treated within the MIG. That was their goal. But in reality, it's about 75% of new claims that are open fall from the MIG. Peter, please explain to our viewers what the minor injury guideline is and how it fits into Ontario's no-fault insurance system. MIG is a policy limit. So if anyone in Ontario under the no-fault system is involved in a motor vehicle accident and is sustained an injury, they are automatically um, entitled to a pre-approved amount of $3,500 um, for minor injury treatment. And that initial submission by a regulated healthcare prof professional allows direct access up to $2,200 and then an additional add-on to balance out $3,500. It's different from other requests. A physio just has to submit a OCF-22 with a proposed treatment list of their initial injuries submitted and they don't have to wait for an insurer to approve it. They can start treating even the day of the accident. That's the MIG. Now, the insurance company, or actually even um, in the SAB, Statutory Accident Benefit Schedule, define the MIG. So injuries that are a sprain, strain, whiplash-associated disorder, abrasion, subluxation, et cetera, all are MIG injuries. So if your original diagnosis presents that, you're a MIG. So let me ask you, Peter, before we dive deeper into the details, you and your firm have a ton of experience navigating the auto insurance system. Share a bit with our viewers about you and Pace Law. So Pace Law has been around for 40 years, founded by Al Pace. Uniquely, um, the structure of the law firm is one of the largest privately held firms in Ontario in that... Alpace is the owner. It's not a partnership or an association. 
So he did, he's very hands-on in all aspects. We have over 20 lawyers and about 186 staff over all of our four or five offices. The expansion happened not on a grand plan, but because he was getting too much business. He had too many personal injury problems. So he brought on more and more lawyers and it's grown to his current entity. Pace about three years ago, though now is um, a full service law firm. We acquired different firms and we cover everything from family, real estate, corporate litigation, criminal law. So all you need is pace. <laughs> so all you need is pace. I love it. That's a good slogan. And you personally have a background in healthcare clinics. Tell us about that. Yeah. So um, I've been at pace in my director position, medical legal services for about nine years, a little over nine years. Um, I was brought in by Al Pace to run this department. Um, before that, I was involved in owning, co-founding and owning a assessment and treatment clinic that focused on psychological, cognitive, and social work issues. So you understand it from the law side, from the services side, and also from the health provider side? Correct, yes. And so my role here is fundamentally I liaise with all of our top um, clinics, doctors, in terms of you know building a strong case together, um, as well as reaching out and giving providing trainings to new assessors. So, writing a medical legal assessment for a legal case, personal injury, is much different than what they do every day with you know clinical notes and records. So, I do trainings with surgeons, physiatrists, neurologists. I also assist new clinics that want to get into MVA, follow the regulatory application for a license under FISRA, and then I help them ensure they pass their accreditation. So if somebody comes into uh, PACE Law and they want help to sue their insurance company, what is that the first thing you're looking at? So right now, I, deal, I dealt with this this morning. A client came in, accident six months old, was kept under MIG, treatment stops usually in MIG after three months, um, was told they have no other recourse, they're out of funding, you know, follow up with family doctor. However, she had developed um, some severe psychological injuries, which were affecting her activities of daily living. And upon a review of her medical records, we found that she was sent by the insurance company to assess whether or not she's out of the MIG. But the insurer failed to mention that the original hospital clinical notes and records identified a concussion alongside whiplash. So sequelae of the whiplash, which then should have taken her out of the MIG in good faith. Because a concussion has cognitive ramifications as well as psychological, which are also exempt from the MIG. That didn't happen. She was in pain needing treatment. She was referred to me by a doctor. We reviewed all her medicals, made determination that she has a very viable claim. We're appealing the MIG and also started a third-party claim against the at-fault driver. But as medical legal services, my team, I have about 15 people on my team, we are integrated into every single personal injury team. So that means when a new file is being screened or the intake, we're not just listening to the story and narrative by the client. We're looking if there's any kind of medical records, et cetera, what are the results from their initial rehab. So we go through a medical legal lens, which helps us game plan the file and how to develop it. Peter, let's backtrack for a second and go 50,000 feet up. What does no fault insurance mean and how did Ontario end up with it? 
So basically no fault. And this is something I educate a lot of clinics and associations about literally means if you, irrespective of fault, actually, anyone involved in motor vehicle accident has the right to the SABS funding. So if you were at fault for the accident, your insurance company still has to adhere to the SABS and include all benefits, specified benefits. And in the case that you're uninsured, say a cyclist or a pedestrian, and you have a interaction or injury sustained in a, you know, relation to a car, you also are entitled to the insurance coverage. It's a first party insurer. So if you have car insurance, it's your insurer that has to pay. If it's a passenger in a car, it goes to the driver's insurance. Now, in some cases, no one's insured, client is insured, the driver say has the lapse policy, you're actually not abandoned. The government introduced something called the Motor Vehicle Accident Fund, which steps in in lieu of an insurer. So anyone hurt in a car accident will get these treatments, be it MIG, out of MIG, or catastrophic. So, but that's the issue though, isn't it, is that there's this category that places a lot of the most common injuries into this minor injury guideline and that that sets the cap at $3,500 for total um, dollars spent on rehabilitation. Correct. And like I said, out of the 75% of people who end up being a make right away, the insurance company, you don't, in theory, you don't need a lawyer to fight this. The insurance company should act in good faith and assess at all times the client's function and whether or not they are gonna benefit from this MIG and functional restoration model, or if they should be out of the MIG to have $65,000 of funding. Unfortunately, I'd say that half of those people are not being adjudicated on at the first step barely for it. I guess there is an incentive by insurance companies to keep people in the MIG because that's a set um, allotment in terms of reserves and funds. Um, and therefore, a lot of clients turn to a lawyer at the time of needing to do an appeal. Now, the no-fault system was the intention to reduce costs to the insurer? I would say the insurer, there's debates around this, but ostensibly, the no-fault would not be necessarily favored by insurance companies. They make they will. But the no fault, you know, that's a government project under the basis of access to justice and care for clients paid by an insurance company instead of relying on public health care system. So with the no fault, then the insurance companies lobbied and regulated, wanted regulations to be put in. What are specified entitlements? Thus, originally the PATH, now the MIG, and then the non-CAT category of 65,000. And then in some cases, clients who sustain catastrophic injuries, which is a very stringent test now to pass. There's one to one through eight criterion you have to apply under, and that would entitle you then to a combined million dollar benefit. So in your opinion, based on your experience and knowledge of the industry is $3,500 cap for these minor injuries. Is that enough? On mass? No, it is not. Um, you know, $3,500. Yes, they have this um, guidelines for costing in these three blocks under the MIG. The first one being for $2,200. It delivers that, yes, immediate care. However, very few, 
um, accident victims who have sustained legitimate injuries would resolve that within that 3,500 12-week block. Moreover, it's the development of subsequent injuries, right? Sequoia injuries of maybe these minor. A whiplash maybe wasn't diagnosed but has a concussion. That needs to be assessed by a neurologist. Under that funding model, there's nothing to pay for a medical legal assessment. So then the client is sort of rendered hopeless or they're referred by a family doctor neurologist who might and might not understand the insurance framework and then diagnose and provide an opinion. But then there's waiting times. And all private insurance, the key goal is to have rapid access to care. But it's not being accessed properly if you're being constrained by the MIG. Are accident victims then in Ontario receiving the care they need? I'd say there is a very good percentage of accident victims, 25-30%, just throwing it out there, are receiving in a, I wouldn't say improper, but not sufficient treatment. And, you know, that's who we try to represent. But also you have to remember that there's so many people who are not educated on this. Even very smart professionals I've encountered are unaware and they rely on their insurance company to guide them. They're paying and you have a covenant with your first party insurer. And as such, you'd expect the clinics that they refer you to, to be proactive on your health and outcomes. However, preferred providers and insurers have ultimately a monetary incentive to keep a person to make and not settle a claim. Because as soon as you're out of the make, you have a reserve of 65000 on a policy. You might incur 20000 treatment. And then there's a, you know, you could want to settle the file. Under the make, there's not really anything settled. 3500 will be depleted. Right. And then once it's depleted, you have to figure out what to do next. And it's not as easy once you've been put in the make. Correct. And also there's limitation periods on policies. So... Under the SABs, for the exception of catastrophic injuries, you only have five years to seek and get insurer-approved treatment. And also, that has an effect on your potential third-party claim of negligence against a person who hit you when you're not at fault. Um, we can touch upon that a bit later, but that's essential. Five years. And a client has two years to appeal a denial. So when you use your 3500 and then a rehab submits an OCF-18 for more treatment. Essentially, the insurer denies it, saying you've reached maximum medical recovery under the functional restoration model. And as such, we deny that. Once you get the first denial from an insurance company, they attach little uh, three pages of legalese and insurance language telling you that you have two years from the date of the denial to appeal it to the LAT, gives you all the access, et cetera. And in theory, they've created this adjudication system that like small claims, for example, you can represent yourself. And then it goes to that tribunal, um, not a court, a tribunal, and an adjudicator then will determine based on your case summary, which is medical evidence fundamentally, if you are entitled to more. Peter, let's talk about all the players in the system. You have the accident victim, the health service provider, and the insurance company. And then of course, there's the regulator, FISRA, the Financial Services Regulatory Authority of Ontario. They oversee all or part of the system. Is FISRA doing a good job regulating this industry? So, you know, um, FISRA and formerly FISCO, you know, some people would like to critique it and blame a lot of this 
um, fragmentation of the system on them. As a regulatory body, they're doing the best they can in terms of licensing, auditing clinics to ensure that they are not um, breaching you know, their fiduciary responsibility to clients, that they're in compliance with insurance standards. You know, and that was implemented also basically to obviate the fraud in the system that the insurance companies investigated and lobbied for. Again, they, FISR doesn't dictate the law or the policy limits, et cetera. They are facilitators of it. They oversee HCI, which is the health claims access um, portal where you submit OCF forms, Ontario claims forms, um, to insurance companies by clinics and adjusters use that platform to respond, deny, approve, pay for services. That again, it's yeah, it can be cumbersome, a lot of paperwork. However, that I think is a good model that they created to ensure that claims are responded to quickly. Because under the SAB, statutory acts and benefits schedule, insurers have to respond to any treatment request within 10 business days. If it's not, you're automatically able to incur the cost of that plan. So adjusters are held to account and on HCI and through such systems, you can see what the time lapsed is for a approval or denial. Peter, as you know, for the past few months, we've been covering Ontario's auto insurance system from the perspective of the healthcare practitioners who provide rehabilitation treatment to victims of auto accidents. We've learned about several issues that I'd like to get your perspective on. The first concerns the fee schedule in the MIG. It hasn't been updated for nearly 10 years, since 2014. Do you see this as an issue? And if so, why? Absolutely. So with, it's been, since 2014, there has not been a change to the superintendent guidelines, which dictate what the cost can be to submit on HCI for treatment. These rates are, you know, government said it's based on an assessment of regulatory colleges, but often are less than the hourly rate paid in private practice or say even by extended health providers. With the lack of increase and how different funding affects practitioners, I've actually seen a lot of top rehab clinics I've worked with get out of the motor vehicle accident realm as they don't want to deal with the paperwork and the basic issue of not being compensated properly. So I think it's a big deterrent to good care. Yes, many good clinics are adhering to that, but really they're not being compensated fairly. Yeah. And what does that mean practically in terms of like you go see a physiotherapist or a chiropractor, there's a mandated set fee, a cap on the fee. So if if the cap for $3,500 is going to mean anything, you, that cap has to flow down through the healthcare practitioners. Correct. Um, for the exception of, and this is again, a double standard for when a client only if is deemed catastrophic, you're automatically entitled to this million dollars of combined coverage, and the fee schedule actually increases for the practitioners. And I think it's about 10%. I've looked at the rates for a while. And again, that does, is nonsensical. Yes, a catastrophic individual has had profound injuries to be deemed such, but it's a two-year process to be deemed cat. So the same providers on the file were paid, being paid less, then it becomes cat and they get paid more. But their treatment delivery doesn't really change. The quality of treatment won't change. So why isn't everyone sort of on a fair ground with pay and remuneration? That's the issue. 
So you've certainly heard of, seen or know, you know, physiotherapists, chiropractors, or massage therapists who have left the business of treating auto accident victims. Correct. And there's a lot of clinics now that I speak to. I meet with clinics every week that actually don't want to be involved in motor vehicle accidents. Um, simply they have patients who are involved, but they're turning them away saying, if you pay privately, yes, I don't want to get involved with submitting OCF forms, et cetera, because if it gets denied, then I'm stuck holding the bag to can provide further treatment, um, also citing the rates. And that's a great loss for Ontarians because yes, a lot of great clinics accept motor vehicle accidents, but you should have the choice to seek any regulated health professional you wish. And those clinics should be regulated and licensed to provide um, direct access and funding. So there must be some form of shortage, is there not? There is, absolutely there is. Um, again, each clinic has a different loss ratio, but really what happens is, is that there's a development of other clinics out there, um, which are more centered as only MVA clinics. And to be able to run the clinic and support care they're utilizing other professionals, for example, physiotherapy assistants or technicians to deliver the care of what was prescribed by the physiotherapist or chiropractor. And then basically also in terms of passive therapies, what they're doing is you're going into a clinic and one of your sessions might be just receiving a TENS machine, an ice pack on you. That isn't necessarily the best outcome for a client, but that's what the clinics have to contend with because under 3,500, that's the most they can make work. You mentioned uh, someone who not participate in all of the forms. Uh, was it the OCF uh, forms? Yes, yeah, OCF form. So what's so what's onerous about that? Um, it's just basically what it's a multi-page assessment form asking for specified treatment. There's a whole bunch of coding you have to familiar yourself. Um, for example on the injury codes, you have to adhere to the ICD-10CA medical coding. So that has tens of thousands of codes for injuries. They have to become proficient in that to submit the right injury code because the wrong injury code, if it's submitted improperly, will be a challenge by the insurer. Then you have to do the funding request line item for every session treatment plan. You have to do of assessment, speaking to specified benefits, if that becomes an issue. A lot of it is sort of legal language and um, insurance language. And physiotherapists aren't being compensated really for that. Yes, they have the right to receive $200 for completing OCF-18, but the time it takes for a majority, they don't think it's worth it. And then they know that they will be stuck and they have an ethical issue taking on clients who are injured, but being put under the MIG when that's exhausted, their first response is they want to continue treatment, but the insurance company is not going to pay. And then they have to make a business decision. Do we incur these costs on a protected basis for if the client gets a lawyer to fight it or receive it in another settlement? What do they do? And most businesses, as you know, the physiotherapist clinics don't have those resources to have outstanding accounts. So another reason why they don't want to pursue, you know, motor vehicle accident claims. It could, it could put them into a bind. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, they're focused on extended health, um, some WSIB, which has a different framework, um, and just private payment and care. 
So if they were to get a raise, the health service providers, we've not yet been able to fully identify who's the party that would provide that increase. If it's not FISRA, is it the provincial government? Yeah, so it's a good point, actually. Like I said, it's all described as superintendent's guidelines of fee structure. Now, FISRA, I believe, would be the one to make a recommendation to the government to increase cost. Um, just as a government champion putting in the MIG and those insurance reforms, right? Yeah, you would think that it would be the provincial government that in the end, maybe the Ministry of Finance or something like that, that would be making that change. Well, hopefully we'd find that out. I have a question though. And if the fees for health service providers were raised, would that not then have an impact on the MIG? Absolutely. Well, and, you know, common sense would say you increase one, you have to increase the other or redefine it. Um, but, you know, how it works and they separate the things, it'll just make the MIG even less effective because now you're draining more of the $3,500 to pay for the providers. That means they're going to be exhausted. And right now, the $3,500 for minor injury is basically planned over a 12-week period or, yeah, so three months of treatment to help you reach this maximum medical recovery. But if the cost increases for the service providing, you're not gonna be able to exceed 12 weeks. You're gonna be probably getting less weeks because they can't propose more. Yeah, well, I mean, let me say that I think that it's, it's pretty certain common sense would say that you've gotta raise both because the system won't work. The healthcare providers are the ones that are doing the providing of healthcare. And if you just take a look here at this table, this is 2022 minor, minor injury cap by jurisdiction. You look at Ontario, I mean, it's low. It's so low that Alberta uh, is MIG, its first tier, beats Ontario by two grand. And if you look all the way up to Nova Scotia, it's $9,300 in Nova Scotia is their minor injury guideline. So you can clearly see that Ontario may have some, you know, living up to do here. Absolutely. And also, I think um, in the last column, it says indexed, right? And for Ontario, it's not applicable. So, of course, you have different, and that's why the amounts in other provinces are different. They've indexed it for inflation. As of right now, we know inflation is quite high, but over the last 10 years, it has not been indexed. Peter, let me ask you about the so-called first payer requirement. What is it and how does it impact victims of auto accidents and health service providers? So the that um, is in relation to extended health benefits. So it's a plan, typically you get it from your employer, there's copay that they pay for this extended health. That includes rehab, different specialties, capped, the average policy caps, say chiro, physio at around 500, long-term disability, short-term disability benefits. And so the theory is that if you're in a car accident, before the insurance company is obligated to pay you a penny, you have to exhaust all applicable extended health through the clinic. So the clinic has to submit as private health, get reimbursed before they can apply for an OCF 22 for a MIG or an 18. Now, in my opinion, that again is really nonsensical because again, as an auto insurer, insured individual, you're paying a monthly premium for an, a specific insurance policy contractually. Extended health is very much the same thing. You're paying in through your work 
um, place for a separate insurance policy. The conflation of them too, I just find inequitous and a point of confusion for a lot of clients. Yeah, I mean, it's every time I hear uh, hear about this, I'm flabbergasted because what does the insurance company that provides extended health benefits at your workplace have anything to do with your auto insurer? Correct. And it doesn't. That's why it, like, the approval process and medical requirements for extended health, really all you need is a physiotherapist, chiropractor, attest to it, and they can charge, build a full amount to the extended health. Whereas in the MIG or the auto insurer realm, you have to prove, get injuries and pay and then get approved, you know, pay, approved. So the models are totally different. Peter, we've also heard that the billing process is burdensome for healthcare providers. Is there any validity to that? Um, you know, so the, again, in the ideal world, what happens is you get an approved treatment plan from the insurer. It outlines the approved billing structure. And then within 30 days or after providing treatment, you have to submit an OCF 21, which is the billing invoicing to the insurer. And they're to pay within 30 days. However, again, it is a bit burdensome because you have to put in every session, look the date for the session, et cetera. Then the system has to calculate it. Then they submit it. They have to wait up to 30 days to receive payment. So yes, it can be a bit cumbersome. And there's the extended health billing first that you have oh, to do. Oh, correct. Yes. And that'll happen. So you got maybe approved. And some clients aren't asked about extended health right away, especially if they're not represented. And so the insurance company sometimes finds out within a month that there was extended health then they basically suspend the ability to pay the physio for the approved treatment saying, until we get a um, explanation of benefits and EOB, um, we were not going to pay. It's, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit, it's a bit, it's a bit crazy. I mean, look, regulatory processes and, and systems are sometimes, you know, very overlapping. It, do you think that maybe that, FISRA's regulation of this part of healthcare is redundant, considering that there are colleges and uh, associations involved? Well, you have to remember FISRA and formerly FISCO. They're, they're not solely regulatory body for auto insurance. They cover a panoply of different financial programs across the province. Given the nature of accidents, it is very much a legal and a medical practice. So, you know, ideally there would be another regulatory body specifically for that in healthcare management. Peter, does the practice of steering patients into an insurance company's preferred provider network somehow limit potential benefits and loss of care? So again, you know, the insurance company, et cetera, and those clinics would say, absolutely not. We're independent. Everybody's independent. But the reality is there's a few chains, corporate chains of physio clinics across Ontario, I'll refrain from uh, mentioning them specifically, um, that get 80% or more of their business from auto insurers. So what happens, they're called preferred providers. You're in an accident, you have to report to your auto insurer. Of course, the accident benefit adjuster is assigned and is going to be quite polite to you and say, you know what, we want you to start your ASAP. And guess what? One of our preferred clinics is 10 minutes away from your home. We can afford them a claim. It's already open. You just go start getting treatment there. And the treatment, of course, they provide the MIG treatment. Um, and they adequately do a good job of the MIG. 
But then they're the ones at, you know, after three months saying, oh, you've exhausted funding. We don't believe your injuries are out of the MIG, you know, but you have a right to appeal and deal with your insurance company. And that's what happens. Now, in some cases where there are serious injuries, they do help assist get on MIG. But their incentive, I think, is volume-based, and they just take the 3500 process client, et cetera. Do you think that Ontario's auto insurance system is stacked against the accident victim? Yes. I think, you know, on, like I said, it's, there's multiple factors that do it. And I think that even though the intention is good with all this, these programs rolled out, over the years, without changes modification, the only person suffering is not the insurer, but the accident victim. You know, the goal of accident benefits is to reach maximum medical recovery. But there's so many barriers that aren't taken into account that people are resulting in living with um, serious injuries, chronic conditions, that they have no resource but return to the public health care system. And again, how is that equitous to Ontarians who through OHIP are having wait times, delays in hospital and specialists? Now, accident victims who shouldn't be paid by the insurer are turning to OHIP, um, you know, public system, adding a further burden to the system to only get treatment. You know, it's, it's not, like I said, it's fractured. If you could wave a wand, Peter, to make changes to Ontario's auto insurance system, what would be the changes? So first of all, getting rid of the MIG or modifying it differently to have a lot more um, factors of exemption so that people who have complicated pre-existings or complicated injuries are not being delayed in accessing the treatment you need. But also the whole area about IMEs, these medical assessments that are necessary to speak to your entitlement of benefits. The, you have two sides, two different markets, one who just works for say plaintiff lawyers, ones that work for insurers, right? And then what happens is you have the insurer sometimes even disputing the credibility of your assessor, you dispute the credibility of the insurance assessor. I've always been of the mind that they should conflate to have some universal database of accredited assessors that you can choose from. The insurance company and the plaintiff has to choose from this predefined list. Um, that makes sense for me, I think. And last question for you, Peter, how well informed are Ontario consumers about all these obstacles we talked about today? Well, you know, I oversee a good majority of the intakes of new clients for the firm. And I'd, is, I think we have to educate at least 90% of them. All they know basically is I'm in a car accident. Oh, my insurance company is supposed to pay. That's what they know. They know that they receive a big package of forms after their accident to fill out themselves to the insurance company to apply for accident benefits OCF1, get a disability certificate. If they're off, off work, they have to find an OCF2 and submit it to their um, employer, etc. That is not consumer friendly. And the education out there is not good. You know, you, all, you hear a lot of media coverage about clinics and fraud, etc. in the auto sphere. A lot of that's, you know, gone away in the last few years, but clients aren't educated on their entitlement to accident benefits and having a third party claim. The adjuster, when you call them and you say, I wasn't at fault, I was injured, that insurance company is not going to advocate and say, oh, by the way, don't forget that you have the right to sue the person who hit you for future medical care. 
people don't know about that claim. So as long as they get to a lawyer within two years, you can still file that lawsuit. But it, ideally, it should be started within 120 days. And you have to build medicals to attest to another set of frameworks and tests to be able to be compensated by the at-fault driver. That, and, you know, it's very hard sometimes to build the case properly when there's no funding.